0: from cicadence
1: We happen to be sitting at a desk where I've been working on the photographs of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. The photographs, document, show you the extraordinary things, extraordinary drama of what happened in those couple of weeks. More strongly than anything else can ever show you. And the the book was published some time ago as an introduction by the great Hungarian writer who s- settled in England, um, George Mikesh. Historians, he says, are preoccupied with the reverberation of centuries. Photographers preserve the great moments. If that isn't a good definition of one of the reasons photography is so important, and of course he's talking about documentary photography, but the greatest photographers are documenters, but artists as well, aren't
2: they? That's Colin Ford. In 1972, Colin was appointed as Keeper of Film and Photography at the National Portrait Gallery in London. This effectively made Colin the UK's first major curator of photography.
1: I think we'd better say first curator of photography in any National Museum or Gallery, because I think there may have been others I don't know. Mm. But certainly no National Museum or Gallery had had one before I became one in 1972.
2: Colin has since become a leading light of British photography. His curatorial work has gained international recognition, and as a photo historian, he has written, lectured and broadcast extensively down the years. To this day, he still curates the photographs he just talked about, were part of an exhibition he devised last year for the Hungarian Cultural Institute. But Colin's real gift to photography, and perhaps his career highlight, came in 1983, when he established the National Museum for Photography, Film and Television in Bradford.
1: It took three or four years for it to happen. The museum didn't open until the summer of 1983. And I was finally appointed 17 months before that. So I had 17 months to see the whole project through and to get it open. We managed to get to Bradford a very significant number of the greatest photographers in the world. It became... It was really on the map of world photography. And it is that, of course, that led to it becoming the most highly attended museum outside London and overtaking every museum in London except for the Big Five. In the first 10 years, 8 million people came to that museum I'd like to claim that I beat a million in one year, but it was my successor that did that, not
2: me. Colin left his post as founding director of the museum after a decade in charge. And the museum continued to flourish, at least for a while, in his absence. A redevelopment scheme was launched in 1996, which expanded the museum's physical footprint by a quarter. And then, a few years later, the museum pulled off one of the most remarkable acquisitions in British photographic history. In 2003, it negotiated the purchase of the Royal Photographic Society collection. This is one of the world's great photography collections. It contains over 300,000 objects, including images, equipment, library items, and archival pieces. The collection traces the lifespan of photography almost entirely, with some materials dating back to as early as 1826. It's perhaps the most historically important collection of photographs on earth. And this collection was, before 2003, owned privately by the Royal Photographic Society. But its acquisition brought the collection under public ownership. And the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television became its new home in Bradford. But the museum that Colin founded no longer really exists. In 2006, it was renamed the National Media Museum. And in March of this year, it was again renamed. It's now called the National Science and Media Museum. And most crucially, its present-day mission statement has subsumed photography into science and technology-based programs of activity. So in real terms, Britain has lost a dedicated national museum for photography. And this loss was highlighted at the start of last year, when it was announced that the museum in Bradford would be losing its core collection. The Royal Photographic Society collection would be relocated in its entirety from Bradford to London. It would be transferred without compensation into the ownership of the Victoria and Albert Museum in South Kensington. And this transfer had been sanctioned by a London-based government-appointed board of trustees, a board with ultimate strategic control over the museum in Bradford. I think I was
1: actually angry first, and then of course I got very upset, because, as I've already said to you, I think it is fundamentally wrong for the subject of photography. I think it's fundamentally wrong geographically, politically, for the people. Uh, I don't have sympathy with any part of the decision, and it shouldn't be in South Kensington.
2: That's the fundamental, central issue to it all, as far as I'm concerned. The news of the transfer came as a shock. And as we'll soon see, that shock went far beyond the world of photography. There was a genuine public controversy. In the eyes of many people, this wasn't just a routine archival transfer between two museums. This was about a young, regional museum in a struggling city, losing the world-class collection it had acquired little more than a decade previously. Losing it to one of the oldest and most established museums in one of the wealthiest postcodes in the country. From Sir Cadence, I'm Callum Barton. This is Drawn by Light. The
0: National Museum of Photography, Film and Television in Bradford first opened its doors three years ago.
3: The Media Museum in Bradford is absolutely critical to, to the city. It's the jewel and the crown in the city centre. It's been
0: a dominant feature of
3: Bradford for 30 odd years. This museum was very much under threat of closure. We have seen a reduction in real terms of 30% of our operating budget.
0: It's like they're trying to strip this city of everything it's got. Bradford District has a tremendous amount to offer. Because the cultural decision makers are overwhelmingly based in London. The RPS collection is the most important collection of photographs in the country, to remove it, is, is to kind of pull another rug from underneath Bradford's feet.
1: Britain, whether we see this as the UK or whether we see it as England, is a highly centralised state with power and control really
0: focused on London. Why well, I'm looking at the Museum of Photography, Film and Television here in Bradford,
2: The transfer of the collection was announced on the 31st of January last year in a press release published by the Royal Photographic Society. And in April of this year, the completion of the transfer was formally announced by the Victoria and Albert Museum or V&A. In that roughly 14 month period, I've interviewed a number of people connected to the transfer. I've spoken to senior figureheads from the V&A, the Bradford Museum and the Royal Photographic Society and I've also spoken to policy experts, stakeholders from the photography sector and local representatives in Bradford. The story that's emerged is complex, at times convoluted. The story has many disparate threads, but they all tie into a wider picture of centralised power and disproportionate austerity cuts. One really stark fact to bear in mind is that the collection has been relocated from the fifth most income-deprived area in Britain to its second most expensive postcode. So how did it get to this? Well, from the outset, it's worth saying that the transfer of the collection is really the end point of a sweeping set of changes that have taken place at the Bradford Museum over the last 4 years. These changes have been entirely conditioned by funding cuts and over-centralized decision-making, and they've all been part of a top-down strategy to redefine the museum in step with something called the STEM Agenda. STEM is an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and maths. It's an American import into English educational thinking, and it's been endorsed by government to try and engage educators on the social and economic benefits of science-based learning. Whilst this might sound okay in principle, in practice, STEM has become something of a political fig leaf at Bradford a rhetorical cover for streamlining and cost-cutting, but we'll get into all that later. In this episode, we're going to look at how funding cuts, remote governance, and a top-down STEM approach have all added up to the removal of the collection from Bradford. In the next episode, we'll hear more about the VNA's plans for the collection, and we'll also take a step back and see how the transfer corresponds with wider national trends. But for now let's go back to Colin Ford and find out more about events surrounding the transfer itself. By the way, from now on, I'm going to refer to the Royal Photographic Society as the RPS. So, Colin told me that beyond his initial anger, he had very immediate and specific concerns about the circumstances of the transfer. For a start, the decision-making process felt off. The Board of Trustees involved in the transfer, and we'll go into exactly who they are later, That board of trustees undertook no consultation with any industry practitioners or specialists, or with any stakeholders, public or otherwise. For such a sweeping decision, a decision involving some of the most important publicly owned cultural holdings in the country, this lack of any formal consultation felt high-handed, maybe even careless. And Colin also felt that the transfer broke with two founding principles of the original museum in Bradford. Firstly, he told me that when the National Museum for Photography, Film and Television was established, it had been very deliberately located outside of London.
1: We went to Bradford because that was government policy. It wasn't some wicked idea that i had dreamt up. It was a a very senior person in the government who in due course was backed up by his minister saying, "Um, we want you to be outside London. They didn't tell us to go to Bradford. Um, but they were hugely supportive. And part of the case for Bradford, which recently nobody has made a big point of, of course, it's smack in the middle of the second biggest conurbation in Britain. Um, At the time, and I don't know what the current figures are, at the time within an hour's journey of Bradford were seven million people. Within two hours journey Well, 14 million people, that's a pretty good market to get visitors
2: from. So, Colin's saying that the original decision to locate the museum outside of London was guided by government advice. And he told me that this is all a mismatch with the centralising nature of the transfer. Relocating the RPS collection from Bradford to London in this sense contravenes a founding drive of the museum to improve cultural provision outside of the capital. The second point that Colin made was that the museum had also been founded upon a holistic curatorial approach to photography. By holistic, I mean inclusive, all-encompassing. In the case of the Bradford Museum, the founding holistic approach emphasised the dual importance of science and art to understanding photography. The curation therefore gave equal weight to how image-making works, i.e. the technical scientific side, and to what image-making produces, i.e. the artistic side. This approach has been gradually replaced at the museum by a much more science-heavy programme associated with the STEM agenda. This new programme breaks with the founding holistic approach because it's concerned mostly with the science and technology of photography and art has been dropped from the agenda altogether. We'll go on to this in more detail later, but for now Let's just say that the proponents of the new programme see the artistic aspects of the RPS collection as incompatible with a science-based approach at the museum. But Colin sees flaws in all of this reasoning. He feels that the underlying logic is skewed.
1: Of course, you may have a different specialisation and you may have people who are expert or research or interested in the art side particularly or the science side particularly. All I'm saying is that to really understand the whole medium, you need both. Um, Why does a Julia Margaret Cameron picture look the way it does? Why does a and Adamson picture look the way it does? Why has the nature of photography changed fundamentally since digitization? Those are all technical questions. The fact that I am turned on or not by a photograph, and a photograph for me is great or it's not, um, is a different matter.
2: When he found out about the transfer, Colin wrote his concerns up in an open letter of opposition. That letter was then published in The Guardian, where it had been co-signed by prominent figureheads from the worlds of art, photography and film, people like Don McCullen, Martin Parr, David Hockney, Mike Lee. But the news of the transfer also attracted a wider and more public debate, one that transcended the relatively narrow worlds of art and photography. Over 27,000 people signed a petition opposing the move, denouncing the transfer as a form of, quote, cultural asset stripping. And then journalists and politicians waded in, with opinion pieces in the national press and disparaging soundbites. The news of the transfer was even raised in the commons. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As the Minister will know, the Royal Photographer Society's archive was recently threatened with being moved from Bradford's National Media Museum to London. What assessment has the Minister made of the impact on cultural provision within Bradford, the wider Yorkshire region and indeed the Northern Powerhouse of such a move? Minister. There are a few things I should mention at this point. That was Judith Cummins, the MP for Bradford South, speaking in Parliament. She says that the collection was threatened with being transferred, but just to be clear, that was never the case. When the transfer plans were made public, the move was always presented as a done deal. And one last thing before we continue. There are now other collections at the Bradford Museum that have been earmarked for removal, in large part because they are also deemed too artistic to slot in with the STEM agenda. These collections total some 150,000 photographs, I'll explain more about this in the next episode, I promise. But for now, let's go back to Parliament. Here's the former Minister for Culture, Ed Vese, responding to Judith Cummins.
0: Well, I've been closely involved uh, with the Science Museum on the future of the National Media Museum, for example, and I'm pleased that now that's being put on a more uh, firm footing. But I would say uh, to the Honourable uh, Lady that there's extensive support for the arts uh, in Bradford, something like £9 million of Arts Council funding, and i I point her to the excellent article written by the Chief Executive of the Arts
2: Council about the support they're
0: giving to
2: Bradford. For now, let's put Vasey's comments on arts funding to one side let's focus on his initial comment, the one about his work with the Science Museum and his being pleased that the National Media Museum is now on a firm footing. He's referring here to the fact that the Bradford Museum was almost shut down four years ago. So we're going to switch gears now and explore this near closure in detail. Because really, to understand why Bradford has lost the RPS collection, we need to first understand why it almost lost a National Museum in 2013. Let's start with a replay of Ed Vesey.
0: Well, I've been closely involved uh, with the Science Museum on the future of the National Media Museum, for example. and I'm pleased.
2: So you might be wondering what Vasey's on about here. What has the Science Museum got to do with the museum in Bradford? To explain, let me introduce an abbreviation: SMG. SMG stands for the Science Museum Group. What Vasey actually means is that he's been working with the Science Museum Group on the future of the Bradford Museum. Bear with me for the next minute, because I'm about to cover some boring but necessary detail. So the Science Museum Group, or SMG for short, is responsible for the operation of four major museums in the UK. The Science Museum in London is the group's flagship museum, and the remaining outposts are all stationed in the north of England. In Manchester, SMG runs the Museum of Science and Industry. In York and Shildon. It runs the national railway museum and of course in bradford smg is responsible for the newly renamed national science and media museum it's really worth emphasizing here that smg is an arm's length government agency in official government speak it's classed as an executive non-departmental public body that basically means that smg is funded directly by government by the department for culture media and sport However, its day-to-day operations are autonomous from direct government interference. But that said, and just to complicate things, SMG's governance structure is headed by a board of trustees directly appointed by the Prime Minister. This board is based in London. They meet regularly to provide strategic oversight for the group and its subsidiary museums. And it's this board of trustees, the SMG board, who signed off on the transfer of the RPS collection. Okay, boring part over, back to the museum's near closure. So it's early summer 2013. Austerity is in full swing. The coalition has been in power for three years, and in that time, the Treasury has cut SMG's funding by 25%. So things are already choppy for the group. But then the government asks SMG to model for the impact of further cuts cuts of either 5, 10 or 15 percent. The group's senior management make their calculations. They estimate that a cut of 10 percent or more would force the closure of one of their northern museums. They submit this forecast to the Department for Culture and open up confidential crisis talks with the city councils of Bradford, Manchester and York, where the three northern SMG museums operate. But somewhere along the line, the gist of these talks is leaked to the press and in June 2013, the Daily Mirror breaks the entire story, running with the headline, Cuts Threat to Three Top Museums. This in turn leaves the chief executive of SMG, a guy called Ian Blatchford, with no other choice but to brief the media himself. He tells the BBC, quote, Cuts of that level bite really deep into our flesh. So it means not only big cuts in the Science Museum in London, but one of our three great northern museums almost certainly would have to close, end quote. When the news reaches Bradford, a wave of local demonstrations kicks off.
1: It's the heart and soul of Bradford in terms of our attempts to turn the city into a city of culture, media and sport, and you know, it's a duel that we don't want to
0: lose. It's like they're trying to strip this city of everything it's got. Uh, Bradford District... Uh, Keithley, Ilkley, Bradford, Shipley has a tremendous amount to offer uh, to the country and uh, I feel that uh, these proposed closures are just trying to strip this valuable national asset uh, down to the bare bones.
3: So we're here today for coming down to save the museum because it's actually going to be closed so we want everybody to show their support, their love, there's all type of different things within the museum that needs to be saved and people
2: don't really actually know. You said an online petition. Yes. Um, what's the response been like to that? The response has been phenomenal. This morning I checked and we had 18,000 signatures and that was uh, that's in the space of about, just over two days. So hopefully we can get thousands more and take it to Parliament and to the head of the Science Museum group and prove that the public want this museum to stay and
0: show their love uh, for Bradford. Uh, For the next uh, part of this morning's session, can I welcome Ian Blatchford, the director of the Science Museum Group, and um, invite Philip Davis to begin. So when you said that uh, one of the three northern museums in the group might be under threat, what you were actually talking about was the National Media Museum in Bradford. Well, I wouldn't put it that starkly. That's what you seem to have just said. Well, let let, let me explain. The the scenario...
2: In the immediate aftermath of the press leak, an emergency select committee hearing was called in Westminster. The hearing's agenda was ominously titled The Future of the Science Museum Group. It had been called to investigate SMG's funding difficulties in light of the proposed cuts. But actually, the hearing brought some positive news.
0: I can say that the museums are not shutting. Uh, and the way I would put it in a way that will mean a lot to local communities is that In quite a lot of national press and regional press, uh, after the minister's previous statements in the following week, it all said that the museums are saved, and the save was in quotation marks. So the message this morning is take the quotation marks off.
2: That's Ian Blatchford speaking, the director of SMG. At the hearing, he was grilled by a panel of MPs, as were Ed and the chief executives of the three city councils involved. Before the hearing, SMG had already secured a 5% ring fence for further cuts. The dreaded 10% scenario was avoided, and the fate of the Northern Museums was pulled back from the brink. But the hearing still makes for a really interesting listen, because it both anticipates and gives a kind of political context to the eventual removal of the RPS collection from Bradford. For a start, it becomes obvious in the hearing that senior managers at SMG had singled out the Bradford Museum when they were calculating the effect of further funding cuts.
0: The view very much uh, of the whole board from day one has been been that we wanted all the museums uh, to stay open. But in terms of which museum might need the greatest attention, the greatest attention was really fixed on the museum in
2: Bradford. So why was this the case? Blatchford sketched out the general reasoning. He initially described local circumstances which had led to declining visitor numbers at the Bradford Museum.
0: In the case of Bradford, there are lots of factors at play, and there isn't one single one to uh, point out. I think uh, the the first is issues about uh, its environment. So, for example, in particular years, there's been major redevelopment in the city centre. And as we all know, when there are building works in the centre of a town, people tend to not go there, so that's certainly not been helpful. I think the other thing that was true when the museum uh, had higher visitor numbers is that uh, the IMAX was a novelty, and certainly both the IMAX in Bradford and also in London has experienced a big decline in that being a big pull.
2: Just to briefly explain, back in 1983, when the Bradford Museum opened, it had the first permanent IMAX installation in Europe. This generated huge footfall at first, but public interest tapered off as other IMAX cinemas sprang up around the country. Anyway, in the hearing, Blatchford also makes a tentative link between declining audiences and the museum's first rebrand in 2006.
0: The other thing that may have been a factor, our opinion is a bit divided on this, is in the uh, period before it was renamed, I think it was pretty clear to the visitor what was in the museum, I think National Media Museum, although it would appear to be a neat title, is actually quite confusing because it doesn't really tell you very much about the content of the museum.
2: I should just note here that the 2006 rebrand was a much more superficial affair compared to all the more recent changes at the Bradford Museum. At the time, there was an explicit change of name from the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television to the National Media Museum. But fundamentally, the public offer of the museum stayed the same, as did the holistic curatorial approach. This first rebrand came at a point when visitor numbers had declined somewhat from the high-water mark of 2000, when the museum had attracted almost a million people. So the 2006 rebrand was in some ways more a marketing exercise, but we'll come on to this again in the next episode. Anyway, back to Ian Blatchford.
0: I think the other crucial thing, though, to say about visitor numbers is that, as always with these things, it depends where you start. Because in the discussions within the scene management team and also The trustees about the future of the museum there, one of the things that we've been quite clear about is visitor numbers alone should not be a deciding factor. Because if if you started from day one and said, here is a museum in Bradford attracting half a million people, rather than think that was a problem, you'd think actually that's a very respectable number by any benchmark, both nationally and also tourism numbers in
2: Yorkshire. So if visitor numbers alone aren't a deciding factor, why else did SMG single out the Bradford Museum? listen closely to what Blatchford says next, because it employs the same logic that would be used to justify removing the RPS collection from Bradford.
0: We felt, we, by the way, being the Board of trust, Trustees, that um, given strategic priorities, the issue with the National Media Museum was that actually there wasn't enough science. That's simple, actually. Because the thing that is now crystal clear... Uh, is that the priority for the science agenda is really paramount in our minds. Um, and, and the thing about the Mead Museum is that when it uh, first opened, I think it was very clear that actually, although it has these great technology collections, they were collected for scientific and technology
2: reasons, not <clears throat> necessarily to tell an art story. I want to pause here for a second and examine this line of reasoning because it's pretty contentious and it's had big consequences for the museum in Bradford. So Blatchford is saying that, above all else, the museum was singled out for closure because its activities had strayed too far from a science and technology agenda. According to Blatchford, the Bradford Museum had drifted from an original focus on science and technology towards more artistic programs. It no longer dealt enough in science to merit further support from the Science Museum group. At the hearing, Blatchford went on to describe how SMG planned to remedy this issue with the threat of closure no longer looming the museum's activities would be consolidated and its operations restructured to restore a curatorial focus on science and technology and to cut art out of the picture altogether this as we'll soon see would directly lead to the removal of the rps collection from bradford but here's the rub The entire line of Blatchford's reasoning assumes that science and technology formed the core focus of the museum's original remit, that art had no establishing claim. And yet the founding director of the museum tells a very different story. Well it always said
1: on the front door during my period as the director and and for some time after I left, it said this is a museum about the art and science of photography. And the curators were told that you never show a camera without showing the sorts of pictures that it could take, and not quite so easy to achieve, don't show the pictures without showing what sort of technology produced them. And that was very fundamental to the way the museum was put together.
2: What Colin says here is corroborated by material on the actual website of the National Science and Media Museum. The website states that the museum was founded in 1983 with, quote, a remit to explore the art and science of the image and image making, unquote. It's therefore clear that the restructuring of the Bradford Museum since 2013 is not about restoring some lost strategic focus. It's about remoulding the core remit of the museum in lockstep with the strategic preferences of Ian Blatchford and the SMG board, which is in itself fine. As the director of SMG, it's Blatchford's prerogative to implement changes as he sees fit. And the Board of Trustees have every right to oversee and consent to such changes. But it should be made clear that the Bradford Museum was, in its original inception, equally concerned with art as it was with science. And for 30 years, the Science Museum group took no issue with this holistic approach. So what else was going on in 2013 that caused SMG to ditch the holistic approach at the Bradford Museum? And since 2013, how exactly has this change taken shape? To find out, I spoke to Michael Turvey. Michael is Head of Collections and Exhibitions at the Bradford Museum. He's been at the museum for a number of years, and he's been closely involved with all the changes that have happened there since 2013. Michael was able to trace for me the entire arc of events that started with the museum's near closure and ended with the removal of the RPS collection from Bradford. He said that the strategic changes really took root in late 2012 when a new head of the National Media Museum, Joe quinton Tulloch, was appointed.
3: And it was at that point, I and mean, in um, and particularly then through 2013, and the. Um, controversy over the potential closure of the museum. Those are the kind of the moments in time at which it be- we became much more focused on the kind of um, science and technology um, opportunities within the, for the museum. The crisis for us in at that point in time was the coinciding of that sort of analysis that needs to change leadership, that needs to change the museum, with the very significant reductions in funding that were coming through from government at exactly the same time. The route to us being sustainable and surviving was very much to say look you know we are part of the largest group of science and technology museums anywhere in the world um which are you know recognized as being incredibly good at what they do um we need to be better at drawing on those resources in order to improve the success of the museum and we can do that if the approaches that we take not you know not to become a satellite version of the, the Science Museum, but to align the approaches that we take with those which are um, current within the Science Museum, within the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester as well, gives us the opportunities as a museum group to share expertise, to share exhibitions, to share programming, to share a whole range of different sorts of resources which means that when you're looking at what you stop doing because you've got 30% less money than you have, this gives you a fighting chance of stopping doing fewer things and continuing to maintain programs and operations that otherwise, if you weren't able to draw those collective pools of resources and and, and expertise, you wouldn't really be able to do.
2: Just to be clear here, the 30% cut that Michael mentions is in reference to the decrease of SMG's core government funding between 2010 and 2016. This includes the 5% cut from 2013. In SMG's latest budget, this source of government funding represents 81% of the group's total unrestricted income. That's to say, 81% of SMG's independent spending power comes from government. So a 30% cut to that power hits hard. The Department for Culture recently announced that this level of funding will now be frozen going forward, so no more cuts. But in real terms, this funding level will still fall year on year due to inflation. And the prospect of further cuts still lurks, of course. All of which suggests that SMG has been left with no choice but to streamline, to lose the frills. So I asked Michael if the strategy he was describing, this pooling of resources between the Bradford Museum and the other SMG museums, I asked him if this was just a case of circling the institutional wagons at a time of
3: financial strain. I think the the circling of the wagons metaphor is is slightly misleading, but I know, I know, because that kind of suggests this kind of, I suppose, retrenchment to a kind of core. Whereas actually, I think what we did in this museum is we redefined what that core was so that we could then sort of be more efficient with with what we're doing. Um, And that meant sort of, some you know, incredibly hard decisions which are about saying you know, these activities and things that we do, although they are worthwhile and good in their own right, they actually now kind of fall out with what our core focus, purpose and mission needs to be as an institution because that needs to be in closer alignment with other, um, other parts of the wider organisation.
2: I just want to repeat something Michael said here. He says, quote, What we did in this museum is we redefined what that core was so that we could then be more efficient with what we're doing. So the picture is now becoming clearer. To offset the impact of funding cuts, SMG has not only consolidated its operations in Bradford, it's redrawn the museum's core identity and pulled it into the curatorial slipstream of the other SMG museums. To illustrate how this change has taken effect, I asked Michael if he could compare the museum's new mission statement with the old one.
3: The 2013-14 annual report uh, mission statement predates the current mission statement. So in chronological order, that that came first. Um, So in that, we talk about, yes, science, technology, and art are still a moving image and its impact on our our lives as being the kind of, the way we describe it. Um, In the current one, we talk about um, the science and culture of image and sound technologies. Um, So one of the significant changes is that we are now In the new one, talking much more about sound technologies as an explicit part of what we do, whereas previously we kind of defined our interest around still a moving image. The other part of it, the science, technology and art to becoming science and culture, um, I think part of that is definitely about us having a clearer focus that our strength of the museum is not necessarily about art, capital A, art practice in these different mediums. But what we want to kind of um, not say is that we have absolutely no interest in the output of cameras and broadcast equipment. You know, whatever goes on the screen or gets printed is about absolutely no interest to us whatsoever. Because, of course, it is because you can't talk about um, any of these technologies in any meaningful way if you don't also consider the effects and the ways in which the, the products of, of media technologies um have an impact on the world um, more broadly and circulate and all of those different things.
2: So just to reiterate, the old mission statement's emphasis on science, technology and art has shifted in the new mission statement to an emphasis on science and culture.
3: I think what we're talking about, when we're talking about science and culture, um, science is part of culture. Um, There are um, ways in which people use a lot of these technologies which are about um, essentially cultural practices More broadly, I think not all cultural practices are artistic practices. Art is a kind of slightly different thing. Um, And as we're part of the Science Museum group and we're interested in science and technology, um, science and culture felt to us like a better way of expressing um, our areas of, our our approach, our areas of interest or why we're interested in the the effects and motivations around um, the the uses of these technologies, Um, whereas art, didn't feel to us at the moment. Um, and given all the conversations we've had about where our focus and where our core should kind of be, it, it felt like it didn't express what the museum was was kind of trying to achieve. So we did remove art from the from, from the missions paper because we felt it wasn't helpfully expressing what the, the core purpose of the museum was.
2: So the shift in thinking that Michael has just described, this removal of art capital A from the agenda was something of a tipping point where the fate of the RPS collection was concerned. This is primarily because the artistic aspects of the RPS collection have always been the most prominent, despite the fact that the collection has comparative scientific, cultural, and historical value.
3: We took a view that if you look at the top level of these collections, because nobody is interested in splitting up, sort of discrete units and and, and collections because that would be a monstrous kind of thing to do. Um, If you look at the the very top level and you think about the top level significances of that collection, um, it is about um, sort of the canon of art photography. That's the kind of, the the top level sets of significances. Yeah, it has lots of other things in there as well, um, but it remains the case that the overwhelming majority of loan requests, the overwhelming majority of access and research requests come from people who are looking at, you know, the the canon of art photography, the modernist photographers. I think it's fair to say that the scale of the RPS collection and the acquisition of the RPS collection in 2003-04 kind of shifted the, you know, by sheer um, size and nature of what it contained. Um, the curatorial focus of the, the museum to very much focusing on an approach to photography, certain canons in, in photography, and certain thinking about photography, which um, were about the way that collection has been assembled, the way it's been collected over time, and all the meanings that kind of are associated with what the RPS have been doing for hundreds of years in, in, in acquiring that collection. So I suppose the way that I would um, try to very simply describe it is that you know when the collection was acquired in two thousand and four it pushed us into a certain focus for what we should be doing, what we should be spending our time, effort and resources on. And then in 2012-13, when we had to strategically look at everything and think about where our core should kind of be, um, that put, you know, that curatorial effort and resource was over in one place, but the core and focus of what the museum should be was in a very different place.
2: Michael was good enough to speak at length with me about this last point. When we spoke, I put forward a case for the extra artistic value of the RPS collection. Without going off on too much of a tangent here, I think it's worth noting that the RPS collection is more a collection of collections rather than a single homogenous catalogue. So it contains, for example, the largest collection in the world of works by Julia Margaret Cameron, a 19th century photographer whose stylized portraiture certainly fits within an art photography context. But the RPS collection also contains the world's largest collection of works by Roger Fenton, who was probably the first war photographer in existence. For my money, much of this material is definitively not art photography. Instead, it's located at the intersection of historical record and photographic documentation. And the RPS collection also contains a vast array of scientifically important material. For example, the archives of the RPS Medical Group chart the development and application of medical photography from the late 19th century onwards. Likewise, some of the earliest examples of astrophotography are catalogued within the RPS collection. And it goes without saying that the science historical value of the RPS collection is pretty much self-evident. The collection is itself a record of photography's formative technical development. Michael more or less agreed with me when I raised the importance and breadth of these extra-artistic components. But still, he said, the strapline significance of the collection has always been artistic, in part because of the wealth of art historical scholarship that has gone into the collection. And Michael also explained that the breadth of the collection comes with a caveat, that its sheer size and scale requires a huge amount of maintenance, that significant resources are needed for its care. He told me that with SMG's resources diminished by 30% and with a revised streamlining remit in the offing at Bradford, the upkeep requirements of the RPS collection became a crucial factor in its transfer to South Kensington.
3: Um, In order to use collections, you have to um, invest in them. They have to be catalogued, they have to be maintained, they have to be managed. They aren't just, I suppose, um, assets that don't cost anything to maintain. They cost a lot to invest in in the short term once one acquires a collection in order to make it um, a, a museum collection fit for youth um, and then they could take ongoing kind of maintenance when we looked at um, yeah, I, I spoke earlier about this idea of kind of redefining what the core of the museum is and that core of the museum shifting to a, a different a different place um, the best way that I can think of to kind of describe it is that in looking at an assessment, and this came out of an assessment of you know all of our collections in in, in the museum, what are we spending our, what are we actually spending our money on? what are we actually spending our time on? what are we doing with these these things? Um, which felt very much like there were parts of our collection which were taking up a disproportionate amount of resource for um, a return that wasn 't close to the kind of the core of what the museum. Have been redefined yeah. as doing, you know, and of course, you know, our resource, which remember is 30% lower than it was, you know, in, in 2020, um, is a zero-sum game. If you're spending it on that, you're not spending it on other other parts of the collection. So it felt so very much. Tr- t-
2: so in that sense, would you attribute part of the rationale for discharging the RPS collection from Bradford to very simply budget cuts associated with the coalition government?
3: I think it's um, it is one of the most important factors in thinking about all of the changes that have happened in the museum and all of the changes we have had to make to the museum it is absolutely impossible to kind of um, think about, you know, would we have done that if those cuts hadn't come in through in 2012 where you can, you can make an argument for why it still would have been a sensible decision for the museum to have done that. The reality, I think, is that we wouldn't have had the um, uh, impetus. There wouldn't have been a point at which we had to make those sorts of choices, because we would have been able to to maintain operations at a slightly higher level. So I think it is absolutely one of the fundamental causes of, of, of the transfer.
2: Before we finish up with this episode, I just want to step back and take stock of all the fairly complex stuff that Michael's talked about. If we boil down his account of the transfer to a few key points, it starts to look something like this. So in 2013, funding reductions from central government really started to pinch, and the Bradford Museum was almost shut down. The senior managers at SMG saw the museum's route to survival as one involving a science-based revision of the museum's core remit. This revision would allow the museum to cut costs in two distinct ways. One, it would provide a justification for ditching any activities or collections associated with capital A art. Two, it would allow the Bradford Museum to streamline and rationalize its activities in closer alignment with that of the wider Science Museum group. Michael says that hard decisions had to be made. As the museum was remodeled more uniformly under the SMG banner, Its founding drive to promote a dual holistic understanding of photography was ditched. Art was removed from the mission statement for the first time in the museum's existence. And the RPS collection was permanently removed from Bradford because its art historical associations and the costs of its upkeep were deemed superfluous to the museum's new science-based mission. As Michael says, the transfer can be fundamentally traced back to funding cuts. These cuts, it should be said, have not just been confined to the Science Museum group. They have affected the entire National Museum sector, including the V&A. So why then is the V&A now able to take on the RPS collection? What does the V&A have that SMG and the Bradford Museum don't?
3: Let's not forget, if the V&A weren't in a position to kind of invest large sums of money in digitising, cataloguing, presenting this collection um, then it wouldn't be being transferred. It, it, it is you know, because they're in a position to do that and we're not.
2: Next time on Drawn by Light.
0: Yesterday's dreams were
3: born with a smile Drawn
2: by Light was a non-profit production for Circadans. It was written and produced by me, Callum Barton. Editorial help from Claudia Cannon, Sarah LeVay, and William Goody. All music was used with the kind permission of Moby Gratis. The Select Committee audio was used with kind permission from the Parliamentary Recordings Unit. Excerpts of the protest against the Bradford Museum's closure in 2013 were used with the kind permission of filmmaker Simon Lawson. Um.
0: Gone with the the dawn They're broader